0: Hi, I'm Christine Morgan, and I'm an historian who absolutely loves talking about Mary Boleyn and occasionally mythology and the role of myth in building the Queens of Europe. Welcome,
1: Christine Morgan. I am delighted to have you here with us. This month, we are focusing on women in history, some well-known, maybe some a little less well-known, and I am thrilled to have you join our conversation. Welcome.
0: Thank you so much. What a a pleasure to be with you and to connect with you again. It's been a long time.
1: Yes, and this is long overdue, so I'm thrilled to have you here now. You have a special fascination with one of the women in history that I think is so interesting, but who... I think has been misrepresented and overlooked and overshadowed, and that is Mary Boleyn. So I'm going to start with that and ask you what drew you to Mary Boleyn? What made you want to study her?
0: Oh my goodness. I think it it's definitely aligned with some of your own passion, which is why why is this story lesser known? Uh, just because there there may be a lack of sources doesn't necessarily mean a person was any less important. It just means something happened to those sources, right? Mm-hmm. So what it does is it creates such a fascinating mystery, and um it always kind of starts for me with some some more well-known story. so for example, the way I fell in love with Mary Boleyn, um, you know, people get really. Um, opinionated about different types of uh, history and fiction and all of these things. But I think historical fiction is an excellent way to fall into topics and find your rabbit hole of choice. So for me, um, I found myself reading The Other Boleyn Girl, and I thought, uh, of all the things I've read about Anne Boleyn, this is the first time I've ever even considered anyone else in her family. And uh, from there, I went down a rabbit hole and I applied to grad school and I did the whole program. And now I'm talking to you about it.
1: (laughs) I love that journey. I love how sometimes we just find the right spark and it leads us in all kinds of directions. And with Mary, it seems to me that she's sometimes used almost as a foil for Anne, and she's often presented as a contrast. So we have Anne, and I know you've you've spoken and um, written about this, but Anne is presented as the smart sister, and Mary is presented as the more classically pretty sister. And they're just contrasted with each other. How do you think that sort of evolved? Because eventually, Mary is presented as the promiscuous sister, because she supposedly had an affair with the King of France and then had an affair with the King of England, which doesn't quite, you know, make sense when you think about those two men. But anyway, um, how does that, do you think that happened? Anne's the ambitious one. Mary's not ambitious. Anne's the intelligent one. Mary's not as intelligent. Mary's the pretty one. Anne's not as pretty. How does that com- competition almost happen?
0: I think this is just sort of uh, reminiscent of probably the first way these stories were told, which would be from a male perspective, from male research, uh, from all these like compilations that were early, and we're just in the process, uh, even though, you know, it's been a really long time we've been studying these women. But uh, I would say maybe in the last 20 years, we're really starting to see sort of like a feminist movement in academia. So the suggestion that these two sisters from the same family who lived and worked in the same courts, who had the same circles, who served uh, great women, great minds, Claude of France, Marguerite d'Angoulême, later Marguerite of Navarre, great reformer thinkers. Uh, there's no reason to believe that uh, these two sisters really would have been educated that differently. And if you actually consider the trajectory um Anne kind of just did everything that Mary did, but later.
1: It's also interesting that Mary and Anne and the rest of the family, George and Thomas in particular, are criticized in some reports for being ambitious when most people at that time were
0: ambitious. That's really the only way you could survive at the court of Henry VIII. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes. That no one was um, not subjected to their own ambitions or the ambitions of others. We're talking about families that are fighting for Henry VIII's favor over and over and over again in, in this cycle of turnover. Um, there's no reason why William Compton would want to remain groom of the stool as one of the richest men in. Uh, in Henry's Privy Chamber, if that wasn't, you know, powerful for him to be in that position. These are our motivations during the reign of Henry VIII. It's about power and ambition for everyone. Right. And so the Boleyns don't stand out. And yet, sometimes it's
1: painted that way, that they're these unnaturally ambitious people when they were keeping themselves alive and in the picture. So it's just really interesting to me.
0: That's exactly right. And, um, you know, if you think about Henry VIII's reign as a whole, he fostered that culture for himself. He wanted people fawning over him, celebrating him, watching him in pageantry. And, in fact, that's one of the ways that he kind of signaled to his courts or his diplomatic, um, visitors who his favorites were. Mm-hmm. That was his best propaganda. Uh, and the Boleyns fit perfectly into that culture.
1: That's right. That's right. And that's, a, that's a really good way of thinking about it. Um, because the court of Henry VIII was its own world, <laughs> Wow. So what do we know about Mary and Anne and their relationship with each other?
0: This is such a fascinating question. And I'm going to start by saying there are some really excellent biographies about Mary and Anne. Uh, You really can't go wrong. But specifically with Mary, great studies by um, Allison Weir, Josephine Wilkinson, um, I've used their works as the foundation of my own. but the one thing that I always find um, that I can't get analysis of is this relationship. So the way that I think about this is, just because letters don't exist now doesn't mean they didn't exist at one time. We see really, really sweet um, communication between Anne and Henry VIII, where she is sort of, um, approaching him on behalf of her sister, Mary. And this is where we see them, you know, writing the love notes and things in the margins of, you know, prayer books and things like that, passing it back and forth. Um, so to me, that signals Mary has some level of mobility. So she's got money. Uh, Anne continues to be in contact with her, uh, certainly during her time as the royal favorite and then later queen. Um, and then she she's advocating for her sister. You can pull po- family politics into that. I'm sure it It is certainly going to play a role, but uh, there is contact, there is mutual respect, there is caring for one another. And then later, um, you know, Anne takes on Mary's son, Henry, uh, and brings him into the royal household to take over his education. That was not uncommon for the period, uh, but she offered that for her sister uh, when her brother-in-law died. So I I see them interacting the way that you would expect sisters to interact. There is clearly a falling out that happens. Uh, There is a point where Mary elopes and then somehow returns to court and she's very visibly pregnant. And this is news to Anne. So there absolutely is some distance that happens Once Anne is fully in her role as a queen, but I think it's also a result of Mary finally having a little autonomy to remove herself from court and to live her own life and to have her own secrets. And again, I don't think that would be unusual.
1: Right. And the fact that Anne's time as queen is so fraught from the time Elizabeth is born it's such a a time of survival for Anne, and she's operating, you know, feeling maybe at times that she's alone against the world, kind of thing. As Henry, you know, drifts farther and farther away, so her response to Mary might be a little bit exaggerated because of her own struggles.
0: Absolutely, that would have been a really sore point. Uh, mm-hmm. Not only does Mary. Uh, find, you know, the true love of her life. She's completely smitten with her second husband, John Stafford, but uh, she's also pregnant. And this for Anne is unforgivable.
1: Right, right. And that has so much to do with what Anne is going through at that moment. So it's an interesting way to sort of see these sisters now, we do see some evidence of Anne and George being close, and certainly um, that works against them ultimately. Do we know anything about Mary's
0: relationship with George? I don't see a lot of overlap. Um, again, this is where our primary sources, um, you know, they create our, our struggles, our gaps in history. Um The one thing that I could kind of consider as an overlap would be something like um, the Devonshire manuscripts, uh, which George Boleyn is contributing to within this circle of sort of reform thinkers. Uh, Mary does not contribute. To these manuscripts, but it is passed around through people that uh, she would have absolutely associated with. So this is where we can kind of put together a picture based on context, but that those theories are going to be entirely based on my interpretation of sources.
1: Okay, and that brings us to an interesting, Question that I know you've discussed in other contexts, but can you tell us about Mary's participation in the Reformation? And, and we don't often, I think we don't often pay attention to that. But what was Mary's level of participation?
0: Yeah, I think Mary is actually quite, um, pivotal. Um she's obviously returning to court in uh 1519. We see her on the records, but we have to consider uh which court she's coming from, and that is the French court. And at French court, they are holding salons. Uh the women at court serving the queen or serving Marguerite de Angoulême, they are required to read books and participate and conduct themselves accordingly. And um, these salons are going to be passing around pamphlets about things, you know, like Luther's Reformation, his his 95 theses. They're discussing that between women at French court. Um, we know that records are really, really tricky about who was in service to whom, Uh, because there's a a fire that destroyed a lot of court documents. But we certainly know from 1514 to at least 1519, Mary's in France at court. Uh, And when she returns, it's sort of on the very cusp of this tip for Henry VIII, his interest uh, in this Reformation thinking. I even read somewhere one time that people um, have You know, discussed that maybe even Thomas Boleyn is somehow smuggling uh, reform type pamphlets from French court, where he's a diplomat, and back into England. We even know Anne Boleyn was bringing books and putting them in the King's library so that people could come through and, you know, check it out uh, without tipping off anybody who wouldn't have liked that. Uh, so the Boleyns are very much entrenched in this early reform situation.
1: And Mary and Anne's experience of the early Reformation is not the English experience. So Mary and Anne are in a very different place. If they're in the French court, it's a very different environment than Henry's English court,
0: right? Definitely. Uh, this is there's an event in the year where Mary Boleyn returns to English court. Uh, previously, people have believed she doesn't return to court until her wedding, you know, for her wedding in 1520 to William Carey. But uh, in fact, I believe that she is back in court as early as November of 1519. And that is within about six months of Henry VIII actually reworking his entire uh privy chamber his entire knights of the body uh, the whole group and there are a couple of theories about what happened here uh, but i think one of the best ones is that you know he sent all of his uh friends over to france to be diplomats and they learned the art of gambling and uh they you know really took well to Uh, having all these women. There's more women at French court than men in this period. So uh, the men just are beside themselves. And when those friends of Henry's return, they bring all of those things back to English court, which of course is going to upset uh, Catholic Queen Catherine of Aragon. And then Henry's losing at gambling. Because his friends got better than him. And uh, so basically, I think that there's sort of a reordering of his household at this time. Mm. But the beauty of that is in that reorder, his cousin, William Carey, gets appointed into his privy chamber. And within six months, Mary Boleyn is married to him.
1: Okay, so William Carey enters Henry's household and then marries Mary six months
0: in. That's right. Uh, and that is how the Boleyns expand their power from the diplomatic branch into Henry's private life. Men with personal relationships with Henry who get one-on-one time with him. And we know that Henry loves William Carey. They play tennis, uh, William often beats him at tennis. They have a really great rivalry going on. Um, and what becomes sort of Henry's hallmark is you can tell when big life events are happening for people because of his granting patterns. Uh, so we see once Mary and William are married, um, we get some suspicious granting patterns around the birth of her two children and other life events Uh, that Henry might want to congratulate them about.
1: We know Henry has a relationship with Mary. Do you think that happens before or after her marriage to William?
0: I firmly believe that happens after. Henry has a, uh, had one hiccup, one big hiccup with Elizabeth Blunt, Bessie, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in that Um, He got her pregnant, and she wasn't married, and he couldn't hide it. (laughs) Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And he never did it again.
1: Okay. And
0: so I don't think that he would have uh, started a relationship with Mary until she was a safe option uh, in that she's married and he he can kind of uh, use that relationship as his cover should anything happen. But what's interesting is we know for a fact that Mary is a mistress at least as early as March of uh, 1522 because he starts to uh, feature her in pageants at court in the same way that he had done with Bessie Blunt. Uh, And we've we've already talked a little bit about how this is his way of showing who his favorites are.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And Mary is in. Uh, the very famous Chateau Vert pageant Mm -hmm, mm in 1522. Uh, Her sister Anne is as well, but there is one extant song from this production that I found in my research. And uh, we know that... Uh, Mary played the role of kindness, and we know this because of the costume records. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the song that survives from this particular pageant, the story that it tells actually uh, features a small uh, sort of spotlight that will go to Mary's character of kindness in a way that we don't see Anne featured And in a way, we really don't even see uh, Henry VIII's sister, Uh Mary Tudor, uh, getting a spotlight either. And the importance of this is that this pageant was performed at a diplomatic event. So in front of foreign people at his court, he is casting his new love interest for everyone to see. And this is Mary's moment where she really becomes absolutely the royal favorite,
1: and it's interesting. He he isn't, uh, although he's he's using the cover of her marriage. He still, in some ways, is public about it.
0: Yeah, I th- I think that there are a lot of ways that um, her presence at court was covered. Uh, Mary had history with uh, the now dowager queen of France, Mary Tudor, who then married Henry VIII's best friend, mm-hmm. Charles Brandon, and. um you know those rooms are connected. you don't have to shuffle Mary through the halls of the palace. She can go through the back ways because um, my theory is she's employed at court with Mary Tudor because she's already served her, so that makes okay. perfect sense. but there's no records of her in service of the queen
1: that's interesting. so we think of her in one household, but she really might have been in another household, and we have to remember that all of the Um, royal women at court would have had their own household, right? Mary Tudor would have had her own household. And of course, the queen has a very large household. So you think Mary Lynn was serving Mary Tudor within the Tudor court.
0: I absolutely do. And um, we know that the rooms of Charles Brandon to the royal chambers uh, had passageways. So uh, I think that would have been a very, very easy thing to keep under wraps. Okay. Um, And I, I just don't have any doubt that this affair starts in 1522.
1: Okay. All right. So he's having this relationship with Mary and previously, and of course, you know, we don't know about all of Henry's relationships. There are a few that we know about and there may be others, but it, it appears that after his After Bessie Blount gives birth to that son, and he names him Henry Fitzroy and he admits paternity and all of that, that their relationship comes to an end. As if once you're the mistress who has a child, then he moves on. Do you think that's true with Mary Boleyn?
0: I believe that they had an affair at least until 1525, which would have been during the times that she had both of her children. Uh, which is also why there's always, you know, the propaganda about well, maybe one of them was his. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's possible. Uh, but a lot of times when those claims are made, you know, they're made by people with agendas. Right. So that's really yeah. hard to pinpoint. Uh, but it is significant in that if we consider that Mary Boleyn was a mistress for three years, maybe four Uh, and then immediately Anne comes to court, what we're actually looking at is about 14 years of Bolin women in positions of influence over Henry VIII's personal life.
1: Oh, that's interesting to put them together like that. So within this one family, you have 14 years of being that close to the king.
0: That's a long
1: time for one family. Okay, that's it really really interesting. is. Yeah, you yeah.
0: can imagine how grateful the Seymours were when their daughter became. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay,
1: we're we looking up fourteen years here. Okay, that's really interesting to to put them together, and I I like that because so often I really think that some of, as you say, maybe male historians and some of the pop culture representations pit Anne and Mary against each other. And we almost forget their sisters because they seem like they're competitors or something. But when you think of it that way, that within this family, there are these two sisters that over this period of time are in the inner sanctums of the Tudor court with the Tudor King. So that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I think they're more alike than not. And... Um kind of going back to what you were saying about how are we putting Mary in the reformation movement? The one source that we have of hers that exists uh, is a petition that she wrote to Henry the eighth. And if you go through it, the language that she uses really, really powerful words like bond. I was in bondage. Now I am at Liberty. You know, she is uh, making a case for herself she's gotten in trouble for eloping. And so she's making this case for, well, I did it because I love him. I did it because we are happy together. Um, what she's not doing is apologizing. And so between the use of language, terms like bondage and Liberty, uh, we see a lot of parallels with uh, William Tyndale's Bible. That is the language he's using in his uh, accessible English Bible. Uh, And those are the words we see in reformed circles. But also what she's using is a strategy called justification that's coming out at this time, where if you have a good reason, it doesn't really matter, you know, that that you did something wrong. And her reason is, it was for love, it was for freedom, it was for um, my family. And so she's using this reformer language as well as reformer argument style. And so I place her firmly in that circle with that. But she's she and Anne are going to be more alike than than dissimilar.
1: and And that example you just gave really makes a strong case for both of those things. For her, as a reformer and as part of that circle, and for her being more like Anne, because you can certainly see Anne doing that same kind of thing, using the language and pointing out similarities with Tyndale and being so well-versed in that and using that. So again, mm-hmm. that's such a nice reminder of their similarities and of their connections, which I think a lot of times just doesn't come through. And so I'm so happy to explore that with you. I just think that's really exciting. So- yeah. As the transition happens in Henry's life from Mary to Anne, do we know anything much about how the sisters are relating to each other
0: during that period of time? I really wish that we did. Um, it's, It's hard to figure out where Mary stands on this emotionally and i do want to add this human perspective to her because because of what you were saying earlier she's sort of painted as the foil mm-hmm. and um but she was a she was a woman she was a mother she was a sister she was a daughter um and she was the mistress of a very pow- powerful man uh, maybe two who could mm-hmm. say um maybe more <laughs> right yeah <laughs> we don't know we don't know um yeah. But I, I genuinely look to the language of her petition, um, for Henry to forgive her elopement in that she is describing a life where she was just miserable. I, I think by the time he turned his attention to Anne, I, I genuinely think that she was glad for it. That is, a, that is a lot to keep up with.
1: Keeping him happy, keeping Henry happy would not be a part-time job. That would be your whole job. Um, So, okay. And it's so interesting when you think of the history that leads up to her making that petition to the man who's her sister's husband, in addition mm. to being king, you know, her brother-in-law, but also her former lover. I mean, it's just this really complicated, and yet she does so in such a strong and powerful way. It's just really interesting to see her kind of come alive through that.
0: Oh, she's so passionate. The letter is fairly long, which is unusual. If you're making a petition, you know, you're probably going to get right to the point. You're going to explain it all, but she just, she goes on and on and the language is confident and strong and purposeful. And I really do believe that it has a lot to do with the way it would have been delivered to Henry the um, It's possible. She wrote that letter to Cromwell, mm-hmm. knowing he would then deliver it verbally to the Uh king. Uh So she is implementing written strategy that she knows is going to be spoken out loud. So she is appealing directly to words, um, storytelling, styles, um, and appeals to his emotions in a way that's powerful. You're not petitioning the king if you don't intimately know the king in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, the way women write letters at this time is always strategic and, and it's, it serves them very well. Um, but, but for Mary's part, um, you know, I don't think Henry would have been shocked. I love to think that she would have been just as, um, self-confident and driven as her sister is often described. And it's because of that letter. And if she thought that Henry was going to hear that. And, you know, think back fondly on her mm-hmm. and consider her relationship, not just with him, but with his queen. And um, the fact that he was always in pursuit of a great love, similar to the story of his parents. I think she right. knew exactly how yeah. to play the king.
1: Well, and that—that that is such a great comment because we just don't usually see Mary as portrayed in that way. We usually, and and I I find, you know, in, in movies or in books about it, we often see her as the one who didn't know what to do and just gave it all up and became his mistress really easily. And so then he got bored with her really quickly and she didn't have any strategy. And then Anne comes along with all these strategies and knows what to do. But you see a whole different side of her when you look at it that way, that she is able to be strategic and to be intentional in the way she interacts with him and to be confident and get what she wants and move him in the direction she wants as well. Again, more like her sister rather than different from her sister, which is what you've been saying. So that's great. I love all these evidences of that.
0: Yeah, I think Henry had a type. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Well, and that's really interesting too, because he, yeah, he was sort of drawn to strong women for quite a while there. So when Anne is queen, when that has finally happened before the falling out, do we see Mary in Anne's household? Do we see them together then?
0: We really don't. It is a a little strange. Um, I can't tell where it is exactly that she goes off to uh, only that the next time we see her is when she's offending the king and queen with her elopement and pregnancy. Um, what we, what we do see a small like glimmer of uh, again, we know Henry has a soft spot for Mary because when William Carey dies and leaves Mary with two children, uh, obviously the king and queen take their son Henry into their uh, custody. But also there was a falling out that happened between Mary Boleyn and her father, Thomas Boleyn. We don't quite know what that was about because he, uh, even as her father, refuses to take her back into his home and shelter her and her youngest child, Catherine. Mm -hmm. And so she petitions her sister who then, you know, petitions Henry and says, someone's got to take care of my sister. So Henry takes care of her twofold. He demands that Thomas take his daughter back in on the grounds of sheer chivalry, man, have some empathy (laughs) for your child. Uh, But then he also grants her one of her husband's annuities Which uh, was really, really telling because it gives her an income to care for her family, contribute to her father's household. um, And normally those annuities would revert back to the crown. So he provides for her in terms of shelter and money. Okay. So he is
1: making that possible for her in both ways, as you say, getting Thomas to take her in and then providing the income as well. And So there's a soft spot for Mary, and I wonder if that continues or what we see after the dramatic fall of Anne. Mm -hmm. So what happens in Mary's life? Anne and George are gone. Mm -hmm. What happens
0: with Mary then? This is uh, where our trail kind of ends. Uh, We know that Mary lives until 1543. We know that Both of her children find positions at court. Um, Catherine in particular is going to be working for Anne of Cleves while she's the queen. So Henry does in fact continue to favor Mary's children. And this is one of the reasons people are a little suspicious about maybe one or both of their paternity, um, You know, he doesn't have to do that, especially when they're related to the wife he executed. Mm
1: -hmm. What is
0: up with that? Uh, But for him, there is still something very compelling for him to make sure that Mary's children, at least, are cared for. What happens to Mary is a little hard. We don't really even know where she's buried, which is sort of a, a sad ending to an otherwise quite Victorious story.
1: Right. I mean, in many ways, the fact that she survives that fall, even if we don't know exactly where she is, and that her children, as you say, that her children remain in favor is a real survival and victory for her. And one of the things that I really like to think about is how both of her children, so we have Mary's two children who are at the heart of court during the reign of Anne's daughter. So during Elizabeth I's reign, the two Carrie children are so much a part of court life. That's just a way of the sisters eventually coming back together. I just like to think of it that way. What do you think about that? Am I crazy? But I really like to think of it that way.
0: No, you are not crazy at all. In fact, um... Here's another little reason why people think maybe Catherine may have been Henry VIII's Mm -hmm. daughter. When they found Catherine Carey's uh, burial records, they were actually in a file with only royal burials. Oh, that's
1: interesting.
0: She's the only non-royal, quote Uh unquote, to have been archived in that place with those people. We also know that Henry Carey was buried with the opulence of of a king or a queen. He has his own large, (laughs) in Westminster Abbey, he has this huge burial section Mm. dedicated to him. It is like. I mean, it's massive. And, uh, you know, the records say Elizabeth spent so much money on his funeral and also on uh, Catherine's. But something that's really interesting, again, beyond this idea that Catherine Carey might be the child of Henry VIII, that she might have been part of the royal records. But um, Elizabeth has a really uh, interesting run in with Catherine's Mm -hmm. daughter where they both have the same interest Mm -hmm. in a man and it gets very personal for Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I mean, we know Elizabeth was prone to being jealous or uh, territorial. Maybe that's more correct. Um, uh, But that particular love triangle was a really, really sore spot for Elizabeth. So again, it kind of calls into question, why is that different? than anyone else who would have liked you know, that love interest. The personal nature of that, the closeness of that, yes. It just seems like the emotions
1: mm-hmm. are just turned up full volume and beyond. So there's something else in there. That's, yeah. That is really interesting. Yes.
0: But I have to be clear. These are my mm-hmm. theories. These are my interpretations as a historian of documents. Not everybody's going to have that, but uh, I have a great love of narrative mm-hmm. history. I think everything is a domino mm-hmm. effect. I think everything is related. And I think humans are human. Well,
1: and and that's <laughs> a really good way of putting it. And also, as we have these discussions and keep asking questions, that's how we learn more. And we try out these theories and go to the documents. And you never know when something new might come up. We've certainly seen a little bit of that in the past several months, that there are new tutor finds and so we may find some letter a letter or two somewhere. But the notion that the child of Mary Boleyn and William Carey would have this huge opulent grave in Westminster Abbey does give one a bit of pause if we think about it in that way. Okay. I'm not saying anything. I just and and certainly again I like the idea that whether Whether they were also related to her father or not, if we just take that out of it for a moment and think that Mm -hmm. Anne's daughter and Mary's children are so close during Elizabeth's reign. And you do see a real genuine affection between Elizabeth and Catherine and the letters that they write to each other. And so um, I do really like to think of that, that Elizabeth did have this family as well you know, being the only child of Anne Boleyn and her, losing her mother and all of that. It's nice to think that there mm-hmm. is some family, there is some Boleyn family, and it comes through Mary. And so that's a nice way to think of the sisters achieving some of that.
0: And I think it speaks again to this idea that they're going to have more similar mm-hmm. values and virtues mm-hmm. and approaches to uh, education, religion, et cetera. Mm-hmm that their children are then also aligned perfectly.
1: Right, right, and fit together very well. And it's a very natural um, relationship for their children. So again, you're right. It it does indicate that the sisters were more alike than they are often portrayed. And that's a wonderful mm-hmm. new way to think about Mary because I, I feel like she's just been so overlooked. If she's only a foil for Anne Boleyn, we miss out on so much. So thank you for that. If you had one thing that you would like people to take away about Mary Boleyn, so we've talked about a lot of different things it has been so fascinating, and I thank you so much for that, but if there were one thing for people to take away that they now know about Mary Boleyn, what would that be?
0: I think at the base of it, um, Mary Boleyn was a whole person. She was a complete person. She was educated. She had beliefs. She was passionate. She had relationships. Um, she was cared for. Uh, there was not, besides the time with her father, there's not really, you know, a time where she's rejected uh, by the king or by the court, except for when she removes her, herself. And she's doing that of her own volition. So she's a whole woman with uh, context and all the wonderful pieces that come with that.
1: That's great because we don't often see her that way. And so I really appreciate that. That is wonderful. All right. So now to just finish up with a little more about you, can you tell us what (laughs) kinds of things you are working on now? And where we can follow you to find out more about what you have going on.
0: Absolutely. Um, Right now, I am actually working to uh, take this master's thesis that I did that we've been talking about, and I would really like to develop it into a full book. So uh, I'm sort of researching and I'm expanding and I'd like to be doing that. Um, I'm also uh, doing a little podcasting here and there, uh, and I'm, I'm doing sort of the A Brief History section of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. So I do, you know, 10 to 15-minute um, segments all about the, the Tudor court uh, and all the different people who were there. So uh, mm-hmm. you could follow me uh, on Twitter at Ms. Christine Moe and on Instagram at the same tag.
1: Okay, that's great. And of course, I'll put all of this in the show notes so that it's really easy for people to follow you. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for joining me. I have loved this discussion. I've loved listening to your other discussions about Mary, but I've loved being able to ask my own questions. And I love coming away with a better appreciation for Mary Boleyn and the whole woman, as you say, the complete woman that she was. I think it's so important and valuable to think of her that way. So thank you so
0: much. Thank you for having me. It has just been a joy to talk with you today.
1: Well, it's been great for all of us. So thank you for being here. Thank you for listening, everyone. So many thanks to Christine Morgan for sharing with us the real story of Mary Boleyn. And thanks to everyone who helped me celebrate Women's History Month. Now, you know, we'll keep celebrating women here on Royals, Rebels and Romantics. Thanks for joining us. Please continue to share the podcast, to subscribe. Maybe leave a rating if you wouldn't mind. And let's keep shaking up history together.